On this episode of the Vincast, I chat with James Aldis from Lo-Fi Wines, Dust Juice and Arc Wines. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to another episode of the Vincast. My name is James Gasbrook, otherwise known as the Intrepid Wino, and uh, I hope that everyone is safe and healthy, and uh, uh, I guess doing the right thing. Depending on where you are in the world, um, you um, may be in various levels of lockdown or um, social distancing kind of restrictions. Um, certainly here in Melbourne, um, hopefully things are starting to ease a little bit more. Uh, we'll be able to socialize a bit and uh, hospitality venues will be able to reopen to some extent and uh, that'll be great to be able to get out again and uh, try some more wines. So um, yeah, look after yourselves and uh, I hope you are able to enjoy the podcast uh, in the meantime. Um, I mentioned probably before the episode uh, that I've officially launched a Patreon page for the podcast. Um, I've hosted the Vincast for seven years now um, and always done it on my own. Uh, apart from obviously the many guests who uh, donate their time, and uh, it's it's now come to a point where uh, I would really uh, appreciate some support, um, particularly as this year my uh, my day job unfortunately was made redundant. So um, head to Patreon got dot com forward slash the vincast uh, i've put together some interesting tiers it's a, a way to kind of give back to the podcast but also get some uh, access to bonus content and um, have your own impart on the uh, on the podcast itself but uh, uh, this week i've got um, james aldis who uh, is a former sommelier but co-founded uh, Lo-Fi Wines a number of years ago with his uh, friend and fellow sommelier, Tom Shear. Um, and uh, since then, he uh, uh, has... Uh, they've worked to grow the business, uh, importing some fantastic wines, but also working with some local distributor, uh, local producers, sorry, uh, and also making some wine themselves. And um, it was great to catch up and find out a bit about James's background. I hope you do enjoy it. Stick around till the end to find out how you can get in contact with James and myself. But until then, I'll see you on the other side. James, thank you very much for joining me um, on the Vincast. It's uh, it's great to see you and 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 catch up. Um, it's been a while, obviously, uh, under the circumstances, um, but, uh, thanks for making some time. No, thanks so much for having me. Uh, it's uh, lovely to get to see your face again, James. <laughs> Slightly different face at the moment. I just, uh, took my beard <laughs> off of, uh, four and a half years, I think. Yeah. Um, James, you may be aware I start every episode of the podcast asking my guests if they can remember the the initial interaction that they had with wine that was a little bit more profound and may maybe sort of started them on a path towards a career in the wine industry? For me, it was in high school, uh, actually studying geography and my, uh, I guess our case study at the time was on the effect of viticulture and winemaking in the tourism industry in New South Wales and how uh, an establishment like First Creek Winery, who did a lot of contract bottling for people, the effect that they had by being able to produce 30, 40 different labels 
of wine out of one facility. So we, we sort of had them as a bit of a case study. And I remember going out as a 17 year old to this giant winemaking facility and meeting uh, some amazing, uh, amazing winemakers while we were out there and getting to see the large scale, the small scale side of wine and the effect that it had on the tourism industry in New South Wales, um, bringing people out from the city to the Hunter Valley. And so that was my, my first real interaction into wine, the first real profound moment of going, this looks like something that was really interesting and, and school didn't overly interest me so much, but this was something that, that really took hold for me. So did you grow up in, in that area? Are you from Newcastle originally? No, I grew up in centre of Sydney in Surrey Hills. So I was um, at school at Sydney Grammar in, in the, in the centre of Sydney. Um, but that was just our, our topic that we were studying at school. So we went on a, a field trip out for a couple of days out to the Hunter Valley. It was very strange because none of us could drink. And yeah, I know. Saying, I was just thinking because it, 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 you, can, you can understand why, yes, of course, what, you know, the wine industry is a significant one in Australia. It generates billions of dollars, uh, particularly in terms of, as you say, you know, tourism. Um, but you, you would, so there would be that conflict of, oh, should we be kind of promoting alcohol, the alcohol industry to, to high school kids? Like, don't we have enough problems, you know, with discouraging them from, uh, from getting trashed on the weekends? It was, a, it was a really interesting topic to get to study. And I think looking at the broader effect of how it affected the restaurants, how it made those restaurants, how it enabled a lot more investment into infrastructure around the areas, how it helped um, to promote a lot of the and and kind of help with a lot of the social issues in the in the towns by bringing people in to stay in the area. So we found it really, I found it really interesting. And from leaving school, wine was something that I had a huge interest in, although it did take me a couple of years after that to really find my path into wine. Were um, was your were your parents um, into wine at all? We'd occasionally have a glass of wine at the dinner table, but Dad was a beer drinker, and Mum didn't really like drinking too much because it always gave her a headache. So she likes drinking wine a little bit more now, um, but it's taken some time for her to to develop into uh, that. I think it's almost universal, you know, if if um, if someone who works in the wine industry, if wine. Uh, wasn't something that was big for for them or for their parents growing up you know probably part of the reason why they might not have really known much about wine or they couldn't afford you know nicer wines uh you know my parents drank um wine growing up i'm fairly sure that there was you know a, a, a mixture of box wine and fairly cheap wine but once once i got them on the good stuff they they couldn't go back they cursed me for that in fact my my grandfather really he was quite an avid wine collector and uh unfortunately i was never at the age where i could drink and he was still around um, right. but i remember my mum telling me that he had a pretty he had a pretty great cellar and had some really beautiful bottles and so i think when mum and dad were drinking wine it would always be a nice bottle but it definitely wasn't something that was had at the dinner table every night that's probably better. That's probably better. At least if they, if they were going to drink, they're drinking something decent. Um, so when, what, what, what did you do after high school? 
So I, I went into university for, for a year, um, into psychology and then into media and never really felt comfortable in, in what I was doing at university. I think I'd, I'd gotten a certain mark and went, oh, okay, well, I need to do those degrees because I got into them. And, but there wasn't really any passion there. And so I was working at a restaurant all the way through um, to help pay for university. Mum and dad, as soon as I finished school, said, go and get a job. And if you want to go to university, you've got to pay for it. So I was working in a restaurant and instantly felt at home. Um, although I was working with people who were much older than I was and from all over the world, it was such an amazing kind of mixing pot of cultures that was so different to the environment at school that I just instantly kind of fell in love with hospitality and, and from there got into wanting to specialise and not just, in a way, not just be a waiter. I wanted to sort of specialise and understand wine a little bit more and be the person that people turn to in a restaurant. So I was sort of 18 and doing my WSET courses and 18, 19 doing my WSET courses and then bought a master's once it was offered in Australia pretty early on. It's really interesting. You, you talk about how it felt different you know, when you have a vocation, people are often going to be of different ages and different experience levels. And they're kind of, they, they've lived, you know, so it, it, especially in something like the hospitality industry, you, you are likely to find people who are passionate and they, it is hard work and, and the hours are not fantastic. So you, you really have to love what you do. Whereas you think about university and yes, you're an adult and, you know, you have to do things for yourself, but in a lot of ways, it is just an extension of high school. Like that was kind of university, even though I, 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 you know, went all the way through and, and, and I struggled through getting that arts degree. Um, that what drove me was the fact that I was studying subjects that I was passionate about, but it just felt like more high school. Like I, I kind of went, I've just done 13 years of school and I'm doing more now. Like this sucks. Like I, I kind of wish I had taken a bit of a break, but um, it's, it, it seems like you were able to fairly quickly find something that you could be passionate about and, and, and committed to, particularly if you were going to do that extracurricular study in WSCT and eventually quartermaster sommelier. Yeah, I think uh, I, was, I was given the option. I, after the first year of university, I, I took the option to defer and I, I guess in hindsight regretted not just taking gap years straight out of school. But I, did, I definitely felt some pressure with every one of my friends going into medicine or psychology or law that I kind of thought, oh, okay, I, I have to do that. Or I wanted to be around them. I didn't really want to lose that kind of core group of, of friends from high school. So then going into restaurants and I, d I was offered a management position right at the end of my first year um, of working for this restaurant and took the opportunity to, mum and dad had sort of said, why don't you just give it a go and manage the restaurant. You love being there. You love the hours. You love the people there. Give it a go and, um, and take a year off uni. And if you want to go back to uni after that, go for it. And if not, go and have a career in hospitality and uh, they they really helped support me through that decision and and have been so supportive on kind of every career move that I've had since then which has been great and reasonably early on you kind of you had that affinity with wine and chose you know you, you wanted that to be more of your focus in hospitality um, 
what kind of venues were you working in that allowed you to kind of be able to have that specialty? Because, you know, even then, uh, yep. even today, um, there's only so many venues that are in terms of, you know, more fine dining or, you know, of a certain size that they have or need um, someone or people or a team that kind of have that specialty in, in a venue. Um, what, what sort of venues were working in Sydney? So I, I started off working for the Nick Seafood Group. So down in Darling Harbour, they had six or seven restaurants there and worked for a year at a restaurant called Casa de Nico, which is on King Street Wharf. And that was really great just to understand and learn the basics of wine. I mean, I was an 18-year-old at the time. I, I didn't really drink wine. So going through and tasting, I guess, what were really classic but really good varietal examples of uh, especially of Italian wines was hugely eye-opening for me and then uh, got offered a management position at another one of their restaurants and was there for a year but I sort of zigzagged around a couple of different positions through the group uh, which was hugely beneficial and then from there took a job and was lucky enough to get a job working at Tetsuya's so I'd gone from a no-hat restaurant to the restaurant that I think at the time was in top 10 in the world rankings uh it was three hat it was restaurant of the year and that was amazing to go from being kind of this restaurant manager at a pretty high turnover 300 seat restaurant to going and working at tetsuya's and looking after eight guests or 10 guests for the night um and being part of at the time i i started as a just as a food runner and worked my way as i was studying uh, as I got my quarter master's um, certified certificate and my WESET advanced level three, I worked my way onto the wine team there. And that was sort of the start of really the wine specialization there. What was, what was like the really fundamental differences you noticed going f- um, from one style of venue to the other? Oh, the way, the way that I had to carry myself. It was almost like going back to school again. I think that um, I was a, I went to school at a private boys' school and it was quite formal and it was quite strict and structured, very structured. And and that was I remember my first day at, at Tets, getting this handbook of this is how you have to act, this is how you have to carry yourself. The amazing knowledge that you had to know of every single dish, of every ingredient where I think I'd been in, in restaurants that didn't really take themselves too seriously. Um, so, you know, going into a restaurant that had from 50 wines to a restaurant that had a thousand wines and a cellar program and wines that were being made for the restaurant from some of the top wineries around Australia and sommeliers who'd been there for 10, 15 years who were, you know, really industry leaders. Top of was, the game. Yeah, it was a, it was a huge step up and and a really amazing learning experience. And my two and a half years working on the as part of the team in Sydney was pretty amazing. There, do you think that uh, like the expectations of a fine dining restaurant of the clientele has a really profound impact on kind of the level of preparation that you're expected, the level of knowledge um, in terms of working on the floor that you're expected to have, because you know, you're more likely to be in a situation where a customer might ask you something and you have to be able to know 
the ins and outs of a dish or, you know, different appellation regulations or, you know, different crews, that kind of thing. Like, yep. do you think that particularly considering the amount of money that like people are likely to be spending and more likely they, they might have um, experience with a venue of that style that they, they are kind of being a little bit more kind of, they, 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 they the fear of, of them noticing when something's not quite right or, or, or noticing when something is really right. And I, I think what, what I learned most of my experience there was that I guess in other restaurants, you could always kind of be confident enough to get your way through any situation. Whereas at Tets, if you didn't know something, you just had to come out and, you know, and say, let me check up on that for you because the customers, their, their knowledge was just, you know, was incredible. And, and yeah, they'd be spending thousands of dollars on a bottle of wine where, you know, the most expensive bottle of wine I'd probably sold was on a new year's Eve. I might've sold a bottle of Bollinger or something like that prior to that. And you're going into a restaurant where people are regularly spending a lot of money on wine. They know their wines incredibly well and definitely knew their wines better than I knew the wines there. So I just read as much as I possibly could and, and took the four weeks off uh, that I had and went to France. And that was a, a huge eye-opening experience for me. After having been there for a year, I'd worked up some leave time and so took four weeks off, went to France with a friend of mine and we sort of drove through Burgundy and Champagne and a lot of the regions that I'd only ever seen on paper or seen pictures of. And that definitely, that trip was hugely hugely rewarding in being able to come back and actually talk about the places and uh and the wines and understand had you done any had you done any traveling in wine regions in australia before you went to france uh yeah i had um definitely been up to the hunter a few times and i think being a being a sydney boy that was sort of the region that was the closest and i was able to understand best um and i was hugely i was a huge fan of of Hunter Semion at the time and and really, really wanted to continue pushing that. Um, I had been down to Canberra a little bit, but hadn't travelled to Victoria before. I hadn't travelled to, I think I'd been down to South Australia for a few events that we were doing with Tallbreak at the time. And that was great to be able to understand the vineyards of the Barossa, but had really gone from the plane to the to the Barossa, to Torbrek and, and back home. So I hadn't really been able to travel through wine regions in Australia anywhere near as much as I, I have now or as I wanted to at the time. But certainly working at Tetsu is, you know, in terms of the, the quality, you know, French wine being considered to be the yeah. best in the world, but also I think that the application of wines from Champagne, Burgundy, um, et cetera, you know, they would work with Tetsuya's food. I can understand that the, the incredible value that uh, that trip would have had, um, you know, both for yourself, but also for your, you know, impact on the venue. No, it was, it was hugely, hugely eye-opening and, you know, gave, gave me the confidence to be able to then come back home and talk about a lot of the regions and a lot of the wines. And I, I had a, a really amazing two and a half years there with a team of people who really nurtured me at that age um, and then an opportunity came up not too long after to go and open Waku Jin which was Tetsuya's restaurant in Singapore um, wow. so he went and opened a restaurant in the Marina Bay Sands complex and 
that was a pretty amazing experience to get to go over and manage a wine list, which I think at the time I was still only 22 or 23 and 22 um, and had the opportunity to, to manage a wine list, which was written by our Australian head sommelier, Greg Plows, who was, who was pretty amazing and had done a great job with the list. But then we really had to, I was able to sort of have almost free reign over ordering wines and, and making that list my own, which was a, an amazing experience. Yeah, I mean, being on ground is going to help, particularly in terms of the logistics of it, as far as what kind of wine you have access to. Uh, and then, you know, being there and interacting with the, the clientele in a completely different market, a different country, would also have been beneficial for you to sort of then make decisions about, you know, what kind of list you want to work with. Oh, absolutely. We went over with the idea of having a very focused Australian wine list and having the best of Australian wine with some smatterings of French. And what we realised after a month was all people wanted to do was drink DRC and and the really the top echelon of wines in the world. And so those those six months, I drank more high end wine than probably every other bottle combined over the next 10 years. Um, it was it was this tasting experience, which I kept sending pictures of bottles home saying, I, I can't quite believe someone spent that much money on, on this. Or, um, you know, there was some really, really incredible bottles that we were able to open as a team. And I was lucky enough to have a good friend, Gerald Ryan, who came over to manage the bar for a, a little period as well. And he'd come over from the Sydney restaurant and we both spent some time living in, in the hotel there um, before I, I got a little apartment to share with six of the chefs. Um, but it was a, it was a pretty amazing experience to be over there for the period we were and drank some amazing wines, got to taste some amazing wines and, and see a, another culture of wine, which was incredibly different to Australia. Did you have any crazy rich Asians moments? Oh, we had <laughs> probably on a nightly basis. It was, um, <laughs> It, it was really some, I mean, some incredible wealth that was there and and the money that people spent on wine just baffled me from, you know, what we thought we were seeing in Australia to going over to Asia and people going, you know, they knew exactly what Parker score every wine's vintage had received. And, and we actually had a little category on as a side note for wines that had received Parker scores over 98 because that was that was all that they wanted to know was what was this rated what was this rated and mm. and that rated what they bought and what they drank and um to be honest I don't think most of the customers that we had there liked wine but it was very much a, a status symbol of taking someone out for dinner buying a particular bottle of wine and you know quite often leaving a quarter of the bottle or half the bottle and that was definitely enjoyed for my education <laughs> and the rest no. um and and how long did you end up spending in uh, singapore so i was over there for seven months and there were some visa complications in the end so i had to had to come home and um took a job working at the newly developed star casino at the time so they had a their, one of their flagship restaurants when they opened <laughs> Momofuku, Bala, Sokyo, and Black by Ezard. And I was the head song for T. Ezard's restaurant there. 
Right. Nice um, little so Melbourne had, connection there. Yeah, which was which was great. I mean, it was it was a it was a really wonderful restaurant, and again, a, a team that we were able to build. And a big part of my job there was was training and and education, which was quite funny being so young but i was really dedicated to that team and yeah i was wondering uh, did you ever kind of feel any sort of resentment uh for, for being someone so young at, in in you know pretty serious positions in, in top positions. restaurants I, mean, I think i was just i mean for the for the opportunity with tetsuus in singapore it was right place right time and and i was also the only one without i i didn't have a partner or a girlfriend at the time i i didn't have kids so i was the one that could uproot his life to go and take this position where, you know, especially with the team that was at Tetsuya's at the time, there, you know, most people were in their mid thirties, forties, fifties, had kids, had houses, had mortgages to pay and weren't really up for uprooting their life. So I took that opportunity, which was really wonderful. And then I think because I'd worked in a casino briefly in Singapore, uh, someone mentioned to someone in Sydney that, I was an Australian working over there and they went, Oh, let's get this Australian kid to come and write this wine list. So um, again, I, I definitely felt like, you know, some people in the industry had thought, Oh, well, he's, he's got to these positions pretty easily, but you know, I'd worked every single day that I could every shift, you know, pretty much since I turned 18, I was doing 40, 50, 60 hours a week on the floor and, um and for a year of that while studying actually for quite a lot of that while studying and then studying wine afterwards and you know i loved to work i loved that um feeling of being of being really busy and and learning and every shift being a challenge but uh, being something different and different customers different people that you could interact with so yeah i think i think people had I think there were definitely some challenges with my age and often a lot of the time it was more from customers who were going, what does this 23 year old know about wine? Why is he, he trying to tell me about it? Uh, he should be learning from me. And a lot of the time it was just me kind of being as humble as I could and, and, you know, allowing to people to, um, allowing people to have that conversation with me about wine. Yeah. Right. And um, was it interesting kind of going from, uh, you know, a, casino-based restaurant in Singapore to a casino-based restaurant in, back in Sydney? Yeah, it kind of it kind of felt, it made the transition coming back home a lot easier. Um, there were a lot of very similar clientele. Um, there were the operational side of things, the systems were really similar. So that kind of made it, made it really easy. And, and we, we built a really great team. We had a great restaurant manager who'd come from, um, We'd come from Guillaume at Benelong and he really just wanted to make the restaurant as, as good as it could possibly be. And there were a lot of expectations upon the opening of that. And we had a, a really great team of people. And, and again, that was a really wonderful two years of my life that I spent working for, for that restaurant there and, and building it up. And we were, we were thrilled that, you know, the accolades after a little bit of time started coming through for the restaurant, which was great. It's interesting because there has been, you know, a, a complicated history of um, restaurateurs and chefs, whether being based in Melbourne or Sydney, attempting to open venues in the other city and there being a, a, a little bit of pushback and, and you know, there's, there, there's a long list of um, venues that unfortunately were not successful 
uh, and you know and in theory because the kind of a rejection of oh you know oh that's a sydney style venue we're not into that so it's it has it's always kind of great to see someone particularly you know someone of tig's stature in the melbourne dining scene um finding some success i think you know to, probably to some extent being in the casino there was a little bit of a buffer um it probably I, was. I think so i i think it was you know and tig i think was part of the restaurant for in the end for three or four years and bef- but it was it was a it was a slightly confusing choice for you know your flagship steak restaurant of a of a casino to have tig who really his his flavor profiles were so dominated by modern asian yeah. cuisine here in melbourne that to yeah. then open the steakhouse was was a bit of a strange concept but i i think his his training in in the beginning had definitely come from that more classic french style and and that sort of shone through and you know we we saw tig in the restaurant most most weeks he would sort of most weeks or at least a, a couple of times a month he'd come up and and be part of the restaurant but we had a, a really amazing team of, of chefs two american guys and a local chef called jed gerard who is has been doing some pretty amazing things recently over in wa and they they were just an amazing team that i think really kept everything together and you know teague's name was on the front door and it was great to have him up when we did but these guys that were cooking behind there were um were really doing some pretty great things yeah awesome um, what what was the next step after that? Uh, so just uh, after about a year and a half of of working for Black, I decided to enter the Appetite for Excellence program, uh-huh. uh, the Young Waiter of the Year, and managed in I believe it was two thousand and twelve. This was yeah, um, managed to take out the award there, which was pretty pretty fantastic. Um, it, it was something that I'd looked to do for a couple of years, but wanted to get a bit more experience under my belt and and have those sort of five, six, seven years in the industry before attempting to go and and do it. And that was that was a really life changing opportunity. I think that sort of put me a little bit more on the map in terms of my place in the industry, and also made it, it opened some doors internationally. So from there, I applied multiple times to go and do a stage at restaurant Noma in Copenhagen. And after a couple of attempts of trying to get that, managed to secure a an eight-week placement there, which was pretty great. And so, yeah, left Black, went over to Copenhagen with the intention of moving to London afterwards, like most Aussies in hospitality tend to have that period of their lives. No, no, you don't even have, you take out hospitality, most Aussies. Yeah, <laughs> and uh, I and I got a, a week into my stage at Noma, and a position became available, and they offered me a, a full time position on the floor. So that was again amazing timing to be over there at that period. I did my, uh, I guess I I've worked for thirteen, fourteen months on the floor in Copenhagen, and that was that was really the the job that changed everything for me it changed my whole perspective on wine i went into a wine list uh, working as part of a, a team on the floor there and under two sommeliers who they knew everything that there was to organic farming biodynamics and natural wine and i had come from wine lists where 
maybe two or three producers might have been farming organically at the time. There was very little aspect towards towards natural wine other than a few bottles that um, Richard Hargraves from Momofuku had opened with some late night meals that we'd have occasionally. And, and that was really all I knew. So I, I went into working with a wine list that was over a thousand wines long and I knew none of the producers. And that was a, a huge challenge going into that restaurant, you know, which was number one in the world at the time and not knowing any of the wines and wine was what I felt so comfortable doing. And then going into a restaurant that, you know, I was probably a bit out of practice having been at, at Black and working for a steakhouse. It really, it was like going into my first day of Tetsuya's every day at Noma. It was, it was hugely challenging. I didn't speak the language, although they spoke English on the floor. You know, a lot of the, the floor staff there spoke, spoke Danish to each other. Um, so it was, it was kind of that feeling of, you know, being a little bit of an outsider, but once I'd had a few months there, it was, it was really an, an incredible experience. I can imagine that transition would have been pretty, pretty difficult. Um, and I come back to that kind of that idea of expectations where, you know, you're coming from, you know, high quality steak restaurant in a casino where you got you know, probably a reasonably international clientele, reasonably moneyed clientele, reasonably image um, concerned clientele who are just kind of, oh, we want to come in. We want to spend, you know, we want to drink the best of the best sort of thing. Whereas I can imagine the, the expectations of people going to Noma, uh, we want to have an experience we don't care if, 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 you know, there's stuff on the wine list that we've never heard of. We know that these guys are going to give us an amazing experience. Everything's going to, you know, be, it's going to, it's going to work well. We're going to try different things. We're going to learn things hopefully. And that, that, that is one of those rare venues probably in the world where you are pretty much giving yourself completely to the venue you are you're kind of willingly allowing your decisions to be taken away from you to be taken on that kind of journey so in the same way that you kind of went to that stage when you were working at Tetsi is where you had to know everything about everything it would have felt like that again I could imagine yeah 100% and and everyone worked so hard there and were so driven in knowing every single detail, every ingredient in multiple languages so that, you know, it didn't matter what custom, where your customer was from, you were able to give them that same experience. The research that they did into, into every guest as they came in so they would give you the best possible waiter and, and sommelier match the and I, I think in a restaurant like that where there was such, you know, at any time there would have been 50 people in the kitchen, 30 of which or 25 of which were stagiaires and that rotating mix of stagiaires, it was quite rare at the time to have people who were staging on the floor. So the floor team was really stable and, and there were 12 or 13 of us, eight of us on each, eight or nine of us on each shift. And so, you know, as my job, working just as essentially just as a, a waiter and working my way up to being the most junior person on the wine team before I left that 
we all worked, uh, I guess, an amazing amount of time and, and the amount that I learned from every single person there who was just so skilled, you know, they were the best from their country who'd gone to, to Noma, you know, this amazing girl, Anna Gret, who was, who's now one of the restaurant managers was this very softly spoken German waitress who started at a really similar time to me. And, and I know she found it really difficult when, when arriving there, not speaking, you know, the language very well. And, and her, she had a really good grasp of English, but she was just such a weapon on the floor. And, you know, I, I felt like every single person was like her, you know, they were so driven, they were so good at what they did. And I was really lucky that when I arrived there, there were two other Aussies working on the floor, James, who's the restaurant manager, James Spreadbury, and Kat Bond, who we'd sort of been introduced a little bit in the lead up to me going over there. And they definitely made my transition into um, life in Copenhagen a lot easier. And um, life in Copenhagen, you know, which is uh, a haven, let's be honest, for uh, particularly the kinds of wines that you clearly connected to. Um, did you really kind of relish that opportunity to be able to go to different places and explore? And, and as you say, you kind of weren't so familiar with these wines. You, you probably were spending every spare moment just, you know, tasting and reading and talking with other people to learn. Absolutely. And I think the, you know, the hospitality community in general, whether you worked at Noma or whether you worked at Noma or not, they were so supportive. And so I, you know, I spent a lot of time and every cent that every spare cent that I had not on rent out eating and drinking. And, you know, it was an amazing opportunity to get to go. We, I lived really close to a, a little wine bar called Manfred's, um, which is, which was a really amazing space. They had a, an ever changing little wine list, a, a great little tasting menu. And so Sunday nights was really the only night that we'd get to go out. Um, a lot of the time, you know, we'd work five days on the restaurant floor and then have an education day on a lot of Mondays as well. And so Sunday night was my chance to, to go out. Um, and so I spent a lot of time, you know, tasting through restaurants there. The sommelier team were pretty amazing at Noma as well of, you know, any wine that was open that was on the tasting menu. And it was such a, a flexible wine pairing menu i think where dishes would change even subtly they would open up multiple bottles to try and see you know if if it was one flower garnish change they'd go oh well the match that we had yesterday isn't going to match for that so let's try something a, a bit different that's going to bring out the floral note of that wine and they were so particular and and it was it was really amazing to get to taste through all of that world of wine and then a lot of opportunity to travel as well from there so you know, where, where I could manage to give myself a, a half day off on a Tuesday and, and have the Saturday night, the night, the week before off, I'd take that two day, two day break or two and a half day break and catch an easy jet plane to Bergenland and go and meet winemakers in Bergenland in Austria or go to Germany or, or go to France. And so I spent a lot of my weekends definitely traveling around and, and meeting producers and, and it was pretty, you know, producers doing things completely differently to everyone that I had sort of grown up seeing. And at this point, did you start to find affinities with producers from particular countries or particular regions or, you know, certain varieties maybe? 
Uh, definitely, I think the Loire was the first region I really fell in love with um, while I was over there. Everyone was so humble. People were farmers. And I think I'd done the trips through Burgundy and Bordeaux and Champagne prior to that. And, you know, everyone's driving around in fancy cars and they have their chateaus. And it just, it was an amazing, it's amazing to go and see these domains shrouded in history and who've just done things so well for so long but they're so wealthy. And then you meet a farmer who is doing his fifth vintage and he has his tiny Citron from 25 years ago and his one hectare of vines that he still manages with a horse. And you see that and go, oh, this is, you know, and he made a wine that for me, I had more of a connection with than any of those wines that I tasted before, wines that had energy and life and you could taste that soil, you could taste that place. And, you know, it was almost was the, the sweat of the winemaker that was, you, you could see his work in the glass. And, you know, there were a lot of experiences like meeting Olivier Cousin, who became quite well known in the natural wine movement, you know, was very well known at that time. But, you know, my first experience meeting him was, you know, he gave me this giant hug. I'd never met him before. And we tasted through a bunch of wines and got to meet his horse Paco. And it was just this, it was this experience of going, oh, well, this this feels so different to every other wine experience that I've had before. And um, and we actually, you know, years later started working with um, with Olivia's son, Baptiste, when he released his first wines, which has been really special to kind of have had that connection um, that's now ongoing into what we do with Lo-Fi. So um, can you sort of take me through the transition from there, from being based in Europe yep. um, to coming back to Australia and then starting Lo-Fi with Tom? Yeah, so Tom Tom was my assistant or one of my assistant sommeliers at Black at the casino. Um, we'd actually known each other. Um, we knew of each other or knew each other through school, but ran in sort of different different groups, went to a different, different schools, but we knew of each other. And... Um, Tom ended up coming to work as part of my wine team and we got to know each other really well and and I sort of loved his work ethic and the way he thought about wine. And so just as I was leaving to go over to Noma, Tom and I actually looked at starting to import some wines for, for the casino, um, some American wines. And we had a an American focus wine list at the time and wanted to start looking at bringing some wines in to help strengthen the offering that we had there um, sort of to separate what we were doing from, you know, a lot of other people around town. And so we, we actually started importing pre me leaving uh, for Copenhagen. We, we bought three pallets of wine um, from the East coast of America. So a producer from the Finger Lakes and two from Long Island. Um, and that was sort of the beginning of our, foray into importing um, so why new york state i think we there was none there was no wine at the time being brought in it was 2012 and we were sort of just before when um brooks and amos started doing channing daughters and um and it was it was really exciting to it would just seemed like a really exciting region and seemed like something that you know we were able to we were able to be the first ones to bring in the first to do. And we actually hadn't been really, there. No, we hadn't been there. Um, which, you know, is very foreign to how we work in terms of uh, the way we distribute now. But um, 
we'd, we'd received a review quite early in the piece, I think in, in one of the Gourmet Traveller reviews from Pat Norse, who had sort of mentioned that, you know, the one, the one glaring error in our wine list was that we didn't have any wines from the east coast of America. And at the time, no one was talking about east coast of wines and east coast American wines. And we went, well, we, we should get some east coast American wines. Did our research. It, it's at funny. Did, what, what, what year was this? This was 2012? 12 or 11. Because that's, that's when I came through the Finger Lakes. I did like two days there. I did Niagara Peninsula and I did yep. the Finger Lakes pretty much just because it was between Toronto and Boston, New York. And when I would tell people I was going to the thing, I was just like, why? Like, like, <laughs> there's not that much good wine there, but I found it really charming. I loved it. And I thought, God, there's so much potential here, particularly for Austrian varieties. But yeah, like even then people kind of like, and, and the, the hilarious thing is that New York state, in fact, is one of the top wine producing states in the U S when was it like 40, 48 or 49 of the 50 states actually have a, some form of wine industry? Yeah. No, it, it, was, it, it was a very strange decision, but like, especially looking back on it now, but uh, I, I think it was made even more complicated by the fact that I got this position and Tom and I spoke about it. The wine was on the water and I went, I got to take this opportunity to go and, and work in Copenhagen. And Tom went, okay. And the new sommelier came in at Black, didn't really have any interest in the wines that we were bringing and changed the whole focus of the wine list that we'd, you know, spent years making. And so the challenge came for us then of, well, if the restaurant that we brought this in to sell to isn't going to buy it, who is? And so we were kind of forced to start a distribution company, which wasn't really what we were planning on doing at the time. And we were we were really lucky to be so well supported by Michael Engelman, who was the head som at Rockpool at the Rockpool Bar and Grill at the time and Frank Moreau and people who, who knew Herman J. Weimer in particular, our, our producer um, from the Finger Lakes. And, and they're the one American producer that we still work with to this day. Amazing. Riesling. Um, oh my God. Amazing. Um, and, and so we, the wines actually went really well and we, we sold out of our three pallets. And then the question was just as I was, it, it took us, I mean, the best part of a year, but where, where Tom was really delivering cases of wine on his lunch break or on the back of a bike. And it was wild and different, but, you know, we kind of went, well, do we do this again? And I was just, you know, my visa was up in Copenhagen. I had a, an opportunity to stay on for a number more, a number of more years and make a, a long-term commitment to the restaurant or to come back home. And I had seen what was happening in, in natural wine over in, in Copenhagen. And it was a, a world where I would say 90% of the producers on the wine list at the time weren't imported into Australia. Um, some were starting. A lot of the grower champagnes had been picked up by, wine, uh, by people like the Vendum who had, were really sort of pushing them at the time in Australia. And Andrew Gard had a, a pretty great selection of, you know, the the, the amazing natural producers and your, your Ganavats and Aubenois and people like that. Mm -hmm. But there was, there was almost everyone else wasn't. And so we said, look, let's take the opportunity. I'd built some relationships over there with wineries that I'd visited and let's take the opportunity to, um, to look at starting to import some of this wine. So 
and you saw that there was going to be more potential for the natural wines, particularly in Sydney? (sighs) I think we took a leap of faith going, let's try, you know, the three pallets of American wine that we done originally had worked and there were definite homes for them. But restaurants were opening up that were really interesting. and, And I think there was this opportunity for really avant-garde interesting wines that hadn't been seen before and so we we took it pretty conservatively with the five producers that we started working with one was a a biodynamic champagne producer there was a producer from two producers from the loire one from hungary and one from austria and and they were sort of the the five that started off our little portfolio as at the time what was berets on wine imports um we changed our name to Lo-Fi after our second shipment when Verets on Wine Imports in Queensland threatened to sue us. Uh, and we both started, we actually, we weren't trademarked, but he was going through the trademark process and we went, it wasn't that great a name anyway. Let's let's look at something that matches the direction where we're heading now. And, um, and I guess minimal intervention wine had been referred to as Lo-Fi a little bit. And so we kind of went, well, that, that name sort of fits what we're doing we also liked that it was two short names and low five was tom and james we it kind of just made sense and and had that um we had that affinity to it kind of instantly so being back on the ground in sydney um how did you and tom approach it because uh from from memory you know you're both working um i think full-time still in hospitality and then attempting to kind of fit in the, the business when you when you had Time. Yeah, so I probably still had another three years of full-time restaurant work and Tom had one, one and a half. Tom sort of, once he left Black, floated through a few different restaurants, worked at Oscillate Wildly for, for a while, um, but I think was really aching to get out of hospitality and end the nighttime element of his life um, and get back into a kind of nine to five role. So we discussed it for a while and Tom ended up being the first one to take the plunge into full time. We knew that we weren't able to pay a salary for a while and I'm sort of forever indebted to the fact that Tom worked pretty much for free for the best part of a year to build the business, um, you know, that we've got now. And, and that was a really amazing sacrifice that, that he took um, while I continued to work in restaurants and we would do it, it continued delivering on our lunch break and spend three four weeks a year overseas in france austria germany meeting producers and getting to you know for us we now wouldn't sign a producer without visiting them without spending time with them without understanding who they are breaking bread having lunch and and it's been really wonderful to continue building from there and i i left my last hospitality job was in 2016. It was a, a restaurant called Silver Eye, which I'd spent really since I left Copenhagen developing. Um, we were ended up being open for a year, but you know the ideas of that restaurant—they were all chefs from from Copenhagen that we worked together over there, and and it was a pretty amazing year. But the restaurant just Sydney wasn't quite ready for it, or we weren't really the right restaurant for Sydney, and. When that finished in in mid 2016, I took the opportunity to um to focus full time on lo-fi and move down to Victoria. 
but that was part of the plan was was to sort of say look one of us needs to be based down in victoria and, and the other one stays here in sydney we knew at the time there wasn't enough really enough growth it wasn't a, a big enough market for both of us to be full-time in sydney and we both were really committed to making lo-fi work and it was a really funny decision because Tom's girlfriend was living in Melbourne at the time and we we played a game of scissors, paper, rock and I lost, so I moved to Melbourne. You lost, so you moved to Melbourne? I would have thought you won, so you moved to Melbourne. No, I, that's how I looked at it. I was trying to lose, but it was, I mean, it didn't make any really much sense at the time considering his partner was living down here full time. But I think it was the right was the right move and and my partner jess looked at the opportunity and went let's let's take that chance to to live together in a in a in another in another city a city that we love and and i was really excited as to where melbourne hospitality was at at the time um i think it it was a year or two behind where sydney was at in the natural wine scene but there were more and more venues opening up more and more people who i think were opening themselves to these styles of wines and so it was a it was a wonderful time getting to come down in in 2016 and and spend time on the full time on the on the grounds doing sales for lo-fi it was it was really wonderful to get to get to start to know a lot of the people in hospitality in this wonderful city and you started to introduce some um, australian wines into the portfolio um, at what point did you start to think about doing your own kind of wine project? So I, I think what we'd realized was it's going to be very hard to make a portfolio work solely off European wines um, with the way that the dollar fluctuates and how much shipping costs and all of those sorts lead of times, the lead times and we, we, we just thought that it was going to be really challenging to not have domestic producers. So we, we started with a, a couple of domestic producers. We pretty much had the same guys since we started. Um, and we, we really love them. We treat, we think they're kind of all like members of our family, which is, is really wonderful. And it's been great to see them grow and blossom. Yeah. So I, I wanted to do a vintage for a long time. And uh, when thinking about who I wanted to do it with and who, reminded me the most of my experiences in Europe when I was living over there. It was instantly Bill Downey and Bill, I'd known Bill in the industry and bought his wines even since the Tetsuya's days. And, you know, he'd gone through the whole Thousand Candles project and I remember having lunch with him there and him really challenging me. And I thought, if I was to do vintage with someone, I want someone who's really gonna challenge me and, and push me. So asked Bill to do harvest in 2000 for the 17 harvest. Um, I ended up living on his property in a little caravan for three, four months. And, um, and that started my affinity with Gippsland. But I guess after doing a years of a full vintage with Bill, Tom and I had kind of looked and went, well, why don't we have a go making a barrel or two? Um, why not look at, at what we can do to, to maybe have a, a barrel of rosé that we can charge 15 bucks or 16 bucks for and and have as as part of the portfolio that comes from 
the same ethically sourced vineyards that you know we we push all of our producers so hard for and make it in a minimal intervention way and and see how it goes and that little project just seemed like something really fun so we approached Geordie K to do our, our first little project wine with and uh, luckily he's he was down in the Otway so it was pretty cold that year I, I guess pretty cold and and late so you know while doing harvest with Bill we did a little project wine in 17 with Geordie which ended up beginning being the beginning of Dust Juice. Yeah right. So it was a barrel of rosé originally in 17 and I thought it was one of the worst wines I'd tasted but everyone seemed to love it. It sold out in a couple of days. And so we looked at each other and went, oh, I guess we should probably try and take it slightly more seriously next year. So in 18, we then purchased a, a couple of tons from and made a, a white, a red and a rosé. And, you know, it was pretty small amounts again, but it sold really well and, so we went, oh, okay, I guess this is something we, we do need to do on an ongoing basis. And so we're now, we just bottled our, our 2020 wines um, the other day and it's become a really kind of key part of our portfolio. Um, we've had the help over the years of, you know, Geordie who helped us for the 17 and one of the wines in 18. Ren, who was really helpful in our first Prosecco wine that we made in 2019. And, um, and we've sort of been able to lean on a lot of the really well-known winemakers around that that we that we work with through our portfolio and as well as that a lot of people in the industry to really help us and yeah it's now a project that um is yeah a key a key part of our portfolio in in well-priced wines that sort of sit in the portfolio to be pourers for lots of different bars restaurants around australia is it a do you have a kind of a strategy uh, or an intention to kind of release things and for them to sell out very quickly or is that just kind of how it ends up happening because i know this certainly you know some of the wines that you make but also the wines that you distribute and import you know they they, they can be quite a, a cult around them you know i'd use the example of the good ogau wines you know they they you have to kind of parcel them out quite carefully, but there's this hype and, you know, you, you, you always know when you guys have got some new wines because you look at Instagram and everyone's sort of, you know, posting about, you know, these bottles with different faces and different formats and stuff like that. Is, is that kind of a, an intentional thing or that's just, that's just how it's ended up? To be honest, it has never been an intentional thing to, I guess, to, the wines to, to sell as they do um we we've been really lucky i mean with with the ogau wines they i got to know them in copenhagen they really are the most beautiful family and and they're some of the hardest working farmers i think what you know when i look back at how we've worked with the wines probably the one thing i change over time is to try and push how great they are as farmers and how great they are as winemakers more than how great their wines are um, and probably try and tell that story better. And that's something over the last couple of years we've really tried to do. But I think, you know, their wines end up just speaking for themselves. And I, it, 
it surprised us so much. The first vintage of their wines took us almost a year to sell. Uh, it was greatly challenging. And then instantly on the second release that we had, people went, oh, I look like that face. I think I'm going to put it on this new thing called Instagram. And I think it was as Instagram became more and more popular and, you know, we've been able to build a, a pretty strong social presence just by posting pictures of, you know, the labels, the farmers, the people behind it, it ended up being in something that now, you know, we have to be so careful in and and really and, and in the way that we share these wines around because, you know, we, we don't get that much more than what we got five, six years ago. Um, and the demand is... 300 times what it was what it was when we started so you know for us it's always about looking after those that have bought the wines before and and little bits where we can you know feed into into new restaurants and new markets and and things like that it's been very similar with with Matassa as well and one of our French producers and Tom you know the first year or two that we had Tom's wines they they were a real struggle to sell it was it was really challenging and and now we send an email to 45 people and they buy our entire year's worth of allocation of of the wines and it sells before we have the opportunity to go out on the road or to do anything with them so it's great to have some producers like that i mean we still have to work incredibly hard i would say on the majority of our portfolio to to tell that story but it's nice that you know year on year those producers it's becoming easier to sell them and you know i can see in a couple of years from now that we'll probably have five or six or seven producers that you know we won't get much more wine from them but the time that it will take to sell those wines will just be quicker and quicker is it also awesome to see someone like delinquente that you know you guys were on fairly early on um just be such a, a force uh, and be f you know finding so much success all over the world in like markets you would never even thought of like you know the fact that he's got his wines in brazil now it's just insane is that kind of really rewarding to see uh, where, you know that whether you someone you guys supported when they when when con was just quite small in his production to sort of see how how much he's grown and how his importance is has you know uh, grown a hundred percent. I I think the success for Greg is that he's he's realised he's in the Riverland. He he doesn't take the piss in his in his pricing. He's always kept his pricing at the same level from 2013 when we started with him to where uh, with his first vintage story in, in 2014 for us um, to where they are now. And it's it's given him you know his his core range has really pretty much stayed the same. He's added a new pet nat in and. I mean, we're so thrilled with him and, and what he's been able to achieve and, and you know, his dedication to working with a small family of growers in the Basham family who do some amazing farming in the Riverland and have really pushed the boundaries on, you know, bringing in varietals that work for that soil and not just farming the same varieties that everyone has. And, you know, I think Greg's done a great job with the, the marketing, the look of his brand, but I think the wines year on year get better and better. And for us, that's that's kind of been great to see and, and great to taste. And of course, you know, in addition to your 
your family um, being based in Gippsland, you have your own kind of project in, in arc wines. And you were telling me before we started recording that, uh, you know, that that's kind of evolving as well, moving forward. Yeah. I mean, I, I feel like I'm incredibly busy between everything that we've got on. I mean, lo-fi has its, its multiple arms with its, you know, making dust juice. And, and that really is my pet project as part of lo-fi on top of the sales for everything in Victoria and, and looking at some other states as well. Um, you know, we have a little shop in Byron Bay, which we opened in, in March as well. And that's been really wonderful. And I get to kind of help curate the selection there. And we've got a wonderful manager up there, Russ, who works for us up in Northern New South Wales. And we also launched a, a subscription service, which was sort of two years in the making and happened just at the beginning of COVID. And, and that's been great to see. So, you know, through the, the lo-fi elements, which is a lot of my, my day job, I didn't really get to spend so much time with my partner and my, and my little one through the week. And that was something that, you know, for me was quite, quite challenging, especially being in a state where we don't have any family. We're relatively new being down in Victoria. And so that was sort of where, you know, while being in bed one night, Jess and I talked about why don't we start a little label and, and get to go through this process together. And um, my partner, Jess, is really one of the, the most amazing hospitality managers that I've, I've seen. She's sort of hospo through and through, grew up in restaurants, and she's got a really wonderful palate and a really great understanding of wine as well. So this has sort of been our, our little project. We planted a vineyard, we look after and, and manage a, another little vineyard. And it's been great to see our wines, you know, grow. I don't think it'll ever be something that'll be huge production, but it gives us that chance to spend time together where we don't get to usually through the week so much. It's been a bit different through COVID times, but it, it gives us that chance to have a, a project, challenge each other and make wines like we really want to that, mm. that kind of push our boundaries and where dust juice I think will always fit in a certain style and we'll we'll try and keep it that way arc we just let things happen as they do and it's been there's been some amazing learning experiences through arc as well but you know you talk about kind of not not having family I think you have a bit of a, a family or is a community um in that Gippsland area you know like you say um, Bill Downey, you know, Pat Sullivan, um, is Xavier based out there? Um, uh, I mean, you know, Ryan, Ryan Ponsford, who, um, recently did a fantastic job taking photos of my, uh, my wine bottles, you know, like at least you have that kind of network. So that must be pretty rewarding as well to say, you know, with I, it, it really is. I mean, I think, you know, the, the winemaking community out here, it's been amazing to find so many like-minded people. I, I was drawn to the area by, by Bill. And then from Bill became really close with Patrick. And, you know, we, while, while we were waiting for our farm to settle, we lived in Pat's little cabin for a couple of months, which was, you know, so generous and amazing of him. And, and, you know, from there, Zabe's moved into the area and, and he's great. Ryan did his first harvest with me, with Bill and, we've got to know each other really well and he's one of my closest friends now. And, you know, we sort of co-manage, uh, Pat and Bill manage a big vineyard at what used to be Wild Dog Winery and Ryan and I co-lease blocks and, and things. And he's going to be someone that I think over the next couple of years, I think his first couple of vintages of wine have been pretty amazing. 
and I can't wait to see what he'll do once he's farming everything himself, which is very close to now. Yeah, it was really, um, it was really funny um, when COVID was sort of start take, um, started to really take hold. And I think that first lockdown, I, I did a few Instagram lives. I did one with, um, with Brad Hickey from Brash Higgins yep. and um, said, oh, you know, what are you drinking? And he held up this entropy bottle and said oh yes this new thing i got from the guys from drinks is it's really awesome and this beautiful shine i was like oh my god that's ryan's wine that's so cool <laughs> i it, it really is he's he's doing such a great job and um it's been amazing to see from you know ryan's a, an incredible artist um his 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 label's gorgeous yeah and his artworks are amazing and and it's been amazing to see his attention to detail in all of his wines you know I'm, I'm really quite jealous of how how detailed and focused he is on on every element of of his wines um and i think in you know in the years to come as well there's the guys uh, lucy and alicia who have vino Ida, which they've just sort of started up Lu lucy lucy is another former guest as well yes um and you know they're They've been so supportive of, of what we're doing and it's been great to kind of welcome them into the, the Gippsland community as well. And, you know, there's a couple of others that we know that are actively looking in the area. And of course, Dane from Memento Mori is probably is my closest neighbor. So he's. Yeah, yeah. right. That's, that's, uh, that's where he's uh, his new project. Yeah. Yeah. So that's, he's got Nick Owl, um, which is his little, farm project there and and of course memento mori wines and you know i get to see dane on a pretty regular basis and it, it's it's great to it's great to have different people to to be up to bounce off they are they are our family here um we wouldn't have survived the three years that we've had in gippsland you know buying a tiny old permaculture farm off grid we wouldn't have survived with out all of those amazing wine without the amazing winemaking community who've really made this a pretty amazing special place to live. You know, and, and couldn't really be much further away from, you know, growing up in, in the heart of Sydney and working in casinos, working in Singapore, you know, it must be probably could have never imagined that uh, you would end up, end up there. But um, look, we could keep chatting for hours and hours. Um, uh, I really do appreciate you making some time. It's, it sounds like you've, not been uh you know not been sitting on your laurels in uh in the current situation you've got lots and lots of different projects so um it's really exciting to see you know how things continue to evolve and, and grow and you know all the positive stuff that's uh, been happening with um, the different projects no thank you i mean it's um it's i think uh it's been a really challenging time i think for so many people in hospitality across australia and, and particularly melbourne and you know we we feel really hard hit by that, but it's been an amazing community around us um, and the messages of support that we've had. And when we've, you know, Jess and I are so lucky to have been outside of, you know, being in, in outside of being in stage four for, for most of this period. And, you know, we're working really hard on the farm while we can and spending time together. But I, I think we're both so excited to get into Melbourne when we can and yeah. see all the yeah. faces. Yeah, we all. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Uh, look, you know, I'm, I, obviously I'm looking forward to, uh, you know, at some point being able to catch up uh, over a bottle uh, and catch up on things. But, um, yeah, just thank you again. 
uh, and very excited about what's going to happen for Vintage 2021. No, I can't wait. Look forward to seeing you soon, James. And thank you for joining us on this episode of the Vincast. I have been James Scarsbrook, otherwise known as the Intrepid Wino. Uh, you can find out more about me on my website, intrepidwino.com, uh, and you can follow me on social media at Intrepid Wino. Uh, information about my podcast, writings I've done in the past, some YouTube videos as well. Uh, you can follow the podcast on Twitter at the Vincast, and you can get in touch via the Vincast at gmail.com. Uh, however you listen to the podcast, um, whether it's on, on a platform like uh, podcasts, apps, uh, Stitcher, Player FM, Podbean, Spotify, um, iHeartRadio, uh, if you have the ability to leave a rating and a review, uh, it would really, really go a long way to helping me reach out to more uh, listeners like yourself. Uh, and it's also fantastic feedback for the guests. And uh, I, I really appreciate people who... Um, make the time to do that uh, please do check out my patreon page patreon.com forward slash the vincast um, have a look uh, uh, any support you can throw my way would be greatly appreciated and i hopefully will be able to create more of a community um, to to chat about the podcast as well uh, and uh, i would really appreciate you checking out my little wine brand vinointrepido.com is the website all italian great varieties you can follow them on social media as well at vinointrepido.com uh, but guys, until next time, bye.